Hello, Hills Church. It's great to be with you and welcome to everybody who is online and also live at all of our campuses. If I haven't met you, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers here. I'm excited to kick off a new series while our senior teaching minister, Rick Atchley, is starting his annual study break. This is something he does to pray and prepare for the second half of the year and all of the incredible messages that he is planning to give. I've seen a sneak peek of the, the preaching calendar and there's some good stuff coming uh, our way. But in addition to some of the prep and, and planning that Rick does during this month, he also has opportunity, especially this year, since he didn't get to last year, to travel and visit some of our church plants. If you're new to the hills, I'm so glad that you're with us. One of the things we love to do is to make sure that, that we are not just a church who's about our local version of the church, but we are a church who's about the kingdom of God, which means we want to fund and support new churches starting in many different cities around the country and even around the world. And Rick and I talk about how encouraging it is to get to go and be with some of these church planners. Whenever we get the opportunity to visit, uh, they often are encouraged that we're there and thank, they thank us and thank you, Hills Church, for your generosity. Uh, but we leave just as filled up because of the, just the incredible boldness that the church planners show, the innovative ways that they work to reach out to their community, the strategies they employ to, uh, to affect their cultural context. And so with them in mind, I want to begin this new series on the cross talking about a different church plant in a different city. The city was a rich city, booming with trade and business, in part because it was an international hub, which meant it was a multicultural city. It was also a city known for its entertainment, hosted all kinds of different sporting events that would draw huge crowds. They'd pack out amphitheaters for uh, different speaking and theater, and, and yet at the same time with all those events, the city had a bit of a party scene, had a reputation for, uh, for some of its uh, booze and uh, excessive sexual expression. But it, with all those different things at play, it was also a religious city with a lot of different spiritual expressions. And it was in a city this dynamic, this complicated, uh, this affluent, that a church planner came and here was their strategy. I'm going to let this church planner in their own words describe their strategy. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Such was Paul's strategy when he arrived in the city of Corinth to plant a church. Now, I'll be honest, as a preacher and as a, somebody who is uh, partly paid to do some public speaking, his, his words here both inspire me and bother me. Because it sounds like a false dichotomy. Like, hold on, are you saying, you're saying I, I, can't, I can't be eloquent, I need to stumble over my words to have an authentic Christian sermon? I don't think that's actually what Paul is saying. I don't think he's dogging the idea of preparation. I think that Paul is dogging the idea of performance and church as entertainment. See, the reason he's doing this is because when he says eloquence and human wisdom, we hear one thing, but the Corinthians would have heard another. They would have had a very specific setting in mind, those packed out amphitheaters. Corinthians loved the idea of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Corinth was a city uh, just consumed with the idea of Sophia. So much so that there was a movement among them called sophistry. 
from that root word of Sophia, where we get the word sophisticated. And these sophisticated lovers of wisdom sure love to hear themselves talk. And if the history books had it right, they could pack out audiences and, and captivate a crowd. But the thing about this sophistry movement of public speaking, it was a little bit like, so maybe kind of, a, you might say like, um, like, like a comedy club mixed with a TED talk. Like it, it was intended to be entertaining. It wasn't so much substance as it was style. It wasn't what you said, it was how you said it. You didn't need to be an expert, you just needed to entertain. That was the movement of sophistry. And so when Paul shows up, his strategy is to make sure he's not going to get lumped in with the other public speaking entertainers, which is why he says at the beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church in in chapter one, as he's writing back to them a few years later, after having planted this church and moved on, he hears about some issues going on. And when he writes back, he brings back up some of the ways his strategy as a church planter He does it in chapter 2 that we just read, but in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, for the the apostle Paul, as he started to preach, he wasn't going to try and just entertain the crowd or draw an audience because he wanted the cross of Jesus to stay front and center. He wanted people to leave, not saying, what a great speaker, but what a great God. And so, and so as he begins to, to, to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to copy that strategy for the next four weeks. Now, we try and do this every week as a church, but we're going to do it in a very focused way this month to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The cross will be our refrain. It will be our theme. It will be our song. It will be our focus again and again. And so in... Week two, we're going to be talking specifically about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In week three, we're going to talk about how the cross not only saves us, but shapes our lives as followers of Jesus. And in week four, we're going to talk about how we as a community are united by the cross. For today, as we begin, we need to start with the core reason that we preach the cross And that's the very next thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are going to stay right there in that chapter for the rest of this message. Here is the bold, audacious declaration that a church planner named Paul makes to some Christians in Corinth. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul claims that the message of the cross, some translations might say the word of the cross, is the very power of God. So it would be important for us to define what is the actual message of the cross. Later in this same letter, Paul kind of gives what, what he calls the things that were of first importance It's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then that he was witnessed by many of his followers who saw him alive after he had died on a Roman cross. At its most basic, that's kind of the nutshell of the message of the cross. The message of the cross is not about some kind of theology. It's not just a proposition. It is a declaration of an event. 
that God came to earth, lived a holy and righteous life, was crucified, and rose from the grave three days later. There's much more to say, and we will this month, but for now, that's where we need to start. That's the announcement. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus rose from the grave, and because of that, everything has changed. That's the declaration. That is the message of the cross. And what I need you to know is that while today we can celebrate that, in the day that it was initially announced, it did not receive applause. And so we need to start with this. If you're taking notes, the first place we need to begin is that the cross is God's worst offense. Even as I say those words, the cross is God's worst offense, they kind of ring hollow to us if we're honest. Because over time and in thought, the cross has become domesticated. It's the result of two millennia of being inside of uh, a, a culture so influenced by Christianity that at this point, Western society can only be described as post-Christian because it doesn't even know what it is yet. It's still reacting against this great, huge, global influence of the Christian faith. And so the cross, we have become so distanced from the horrific reality of the Roman cross. So to help jog our collective memory, we're just going to do a short history lesson on crucifixion. The Romans, it's been said, didn't invent crucifixion. That might go to the Babylonians or the Assyrians. There's some debate there. But everybody can agree that the Romans, in a twisted way, perfected it. And so here's what Romans would do to those who were sent to the cross. It would begin with a flogging, a whip that was known as a cat of nine tails that had shraps of clay, rock, glass that would be raked across the victim's back putting them within an inch of their life. Then they would be given a, the shorter cross beam that would go for the arms, and that's what they would be made to carry through the town or village. They would find the main route to go by as many people as possible. Crucifixions were intended to be viral in the sense of as many people as possible would see them and know about them. Then they would carry the cross outside the city gate because it was undignified to ever crucify someone in a city. It was always outside the city next to a highway, a road. And their soldiers, fixing the cross beam to that vertical beam, they would drive nails that might be better described as spikes into the ankles and wrists of the victim, hoisting them up the crucified person would be hanging by their own body. They would need to push up in order to breathe, lest their lungs cave in, making every breath agony. It, if you only looked at depictions of Jesus on the cross, you might not know that it wasn't uncommon for the crucified person to be naked, humiliated, because shame was a key component of crucifixion. Passerbys on the highway would mock the dying to show their allegiance to the empire. And eventually, depending on if it was a number of hours, for Jesus, in the accounts of the Gospels, it was six hours. But for many other crucified victims, it might last a lot longer, even days. Part of the point of crucifixion and its design is that it would make the pain and torture last as long as possible. But eventually, one of the sick, twisted parts of crucifixion is that it forced the victim to become their own executioner. 
they would have to decide when would they give up trying to push up any more on their shaking limbs for one more breath. Because when they would hang down, their lungs would collapse in and they'd be unable to breathe. Quite simply, it is one of the very worst ways you can imagine someone being killed. And so you don't have to take my word for it on this little short history lesson. Why don't we listen to the words of a Roman who actually saw crucifixions happen? This was the Roman philosopher Seneca who wrote and said, the crucified victim would be wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop, fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders and drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony. If this was so gruesome and yet commonplace enough that it's been written about by many different Roman historians and writers who, who saw it take place. If, why on earth, we have to ask, why did Rome do this? And it's because that was how they kept slaves and revolutionaries and insurrectionists in check. You could, in a twisted way, say that the, the cross already had a message that Rome was trying to send. The message of the Roman cross was... Step out of line, defy Caesar, and you'll end up here too. The message of the Roman cross was, we're in charge, and if you push back, you're going to end up like this. And even though this was a, you might say, a necessary evil for Roman peace throughout the empire, even the Roman citizenry were so ashamed of it, they didn't even want to talk about it. Just a few decades before Jesus was born, here's Roman philosopher Cicero who wrote, and he went so far as to say that even the word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it's not only the actual occurrence of these things, indeed the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Here's the point of this little history lesson we've been on. The Romans were so disgusted with crucifixion that even if you saw a cross on the way to someone's house, you better not bring it up at the dinner table. This is so, such a stain on Roman society, so offensive, so horrid, so tragic that you just need to turn your eyes and pretend you don't see it. And so it is in that social context with the cross carrying that kind of stigma that Jesus sends his disciples out into the Roman Empire to preach a new message of the cross. No wonder people didn't applaud. I mean, no, and no wonder that Christians were seen as some kind of backwards, weird, fringe Jewish cult. Because if you were going to make up a religion... For, those, for any, any, any skeptics who may be of the mind that, that Christianity is just an invented religion, you need to understand the disciples, if they made it up, were horrible inventors. If you write a story about God, if you claim that you followed God in the flesh, this is not how you write God's story. God shouldn't end up on a cross because that basically is proof that you weren't following God at all. And yet this is what they preached. No wonder Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness. 
which should make every one of us ask, Jesus, God, why in the world would you choose the cross? And as Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians, he's got a little bit of an answer. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, I'll, I'll grant you this. Paul gets a little bit dense there. We're going back and forth with wisdom and foolishness in the world and God. What's the point? Well, Paul brings up the philosopher, the wise person, the teacher. These are to represent the best minds of the day. The kind of minds with an intellect and eloquence who could captivate an audience. And Paul basically says they might be able to draw a crowd, but they would never come up with the cross. They, they might have a few valuable things to say for, for basic life lessons, but none of them realized a crucified Messiah. The point for us is that the message, we need to be offended again by the message of the cross because it is a message none of us would come up with on our own. It's a message that you cannot, through human wisdom, arrive at the cross. You cannot study or research your way into the cross. You cannot watch every TED Talk online with all the brilliant experts and somehow arrive at the notion that there is a God who died on a Roman tree. That is foolishness to the world. And for us to be offended again, we have to realize that as this message was spreading, what was crazy was that people were still willing to believe it. And the reason that God would choose this way, well, look at what Paul says next. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul's basically saying, look, when we preach Christ crucified, there's two groups out there, broadly speaking, who are listening. There's Jews who know about the history of the faith and they know about the Messiah and they're going, there's no way that the Messiah is crucified. That's not the kind of sign we're looking for. And then there's Greeks who are looking for Sophia, for wisdom. But we, let's modernize these groups for just a second. I like how uh, theologian Fleming Rutledge does this in her book on the crucifixion. She she says, basically, you could call Greeks secular people and you could call Jews churchgoers. So she writes and says, churchgoers want visionary experiences and spiritual uplift. Secular people want proofs, arguments, demonstrations, philosophy, and science. The striking fact is that neither of these groups wants to hear about a cross. Do you know you can try and do church without a cross? You can do positive thinking without a cross. It's actually a lot easier. You can do feel-good faith without a cross. And yet for the world, looking for the proofs, looking for the, help me logic this out. What we preach is foolishness. The Greek word for foolishness is moros. It is where we get the word moron. Christians are morons who have a moronic message. That's basically the Greek paraphrase for you. Just so you know. And that was really how Christians were seen. Here, I'll, I'll show you something. I found basically the, the ancient version of being trolled for being a Christian. 
it's, uh, it's this drawing here, and it, it, it was discovered, it's from around 200 AD, about 200 years after Jesus. And the, the words say, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, the, the, pers- the figure on, uh, on the left, the lower figure, is this, this person, Alex, who's worshiping somebody on a cross. But as you can see, the reason that this is trolling the Christian faith is because that somebody on a cross who should be Jesus with a crown of thorns is a donkey's head. This was how the earliest Christians were seen. You guys deserve to be the butt of the joke because what you believe about God is asinine. That was it. Like, are are you kidding me? The idea that, that a hero would be humiliated in this way? That a redeemer would be rejected by his own people? This just doesn't make any sense. And even though that's what we preach, and even though that's how it can be perceived, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, but to those whom God has called, and he's called some who are Jews and some who are Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God a Sophia that the world would never recognize. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul's basically saying, look, through the cross, God has subverted all of the the world's metrics for strength and wisdom and power, and he's done it through the weak foolishness of the cross. Because when when the word spreads of the cross and begins to receive people who come under the sign of the cross and who declare a crucified Messiah, it could only be through a move of God that that would happen. No preacher gets credit because they're preaching foolishness. No church gets credit because they are around a sign and symbol and savior with a foolish death. It's only God who gets the glory if the message of the cross is spread. Because even the weakness of what God chose is better than human strength and human wisdom. Because the cross has stood the test of time. So Andy Stanley in his book Irresistible writes about going to Rome and going to visit the Colosseum. Now I actually got to go there in in college and in his story he talks about walking through the emperor's gate. It's this main entrance uh, to, to the Colosseum that everybody who comes to visit has to walk through. And, and as he describes this, he says that he was stopped in his tracks when, as he began to walk under with this tourist group he was with, there was this plaque right over the entrance that everybody had to walk under. And it was a plaque that had been put there by a pope dedicating the site, and it had a little cross on it. And he said it's the most beautiful cross he's ever seen. He stopped, he went over to the, the tour guide and said, wait, wait, tell me about this cross. And the, the tour guide hadn't even noticed it. Because if you're in Rome, there's crosses all over the place. And yet here was this cross over the main entrance, the emperor's gate into the Colosseum. He did some research and found out that that was put there around the 15th century by a pope who was trying to rescue the Colosseum. It was in disrepair at the time. It was going to be torn down and for safety reasons and they were gonna build something new on top. And the pope dedicated the site and saved it not to be a great tourist attraction for people around the world, but as a memorial for Christian martyrs who died there for claiming Christ crucified. Think about that. The pride of Rome was saved only because the legacy of Christians 
who died there. That's the weakness of God proving stronger than human strength. If you were a betting person back then, man, odds were you better pick Rome to last. You better pick Rome to survive. Not this fringe little weird cult with a savior on a cross. None of that makes any sense. And yet today the Colosseum is a tourist attraction and everyone who flocks there has to walk under the sign of the cross. And meanwhile, the message of the cross is preached all over the world because God will be praised through what he did on the cross. That's why when Paul shows up in Corinth, he's not going to do things the human way. The challenge for the Corinthians was that they really wanted Paul to basically help them have a church that was just a mini version of Corinthian culture with a twist of Christianity. I first heard that language with a twist of Christianity in an article that was published last year by a journalist named Ben Sixsmith. Now, you need to know that uh, this journalist is, is not a Christian. And he wrote an article titled, The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. And he, he, he points out in the article all these different ways that American Christians really want to be associated with and, and whatever's trending or popular inside of mainstream culture. And so there's some churches that have a celebrity culture with a twist of Christianity. There's some progressive Christians who seek left-leaning social agendas with a twist of Christianity. Conservatives that seek right-leaning economics with a twist of Christianity. And then he concludes the article with these words. If Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Church, that is a non-Christian looking into Western Christian culture and saying, you know, it doesn't seem like you're set apart by foolishness of God. Seems like you really want Western culture with a twist of Christianity. And the temptation, that was the temptation in Corinth. That is the temptation today. In our culture, it is increasingly common to try to make Christianity less offensive and more comfortable for people. Now, I want to pause and say something really important. There's an aspect of Western Christianity that has been offensive for all the wrong reasons. Reasons that are not of Christ, reasons that are not representing the character of Christ, and reasons that are tied to sins of the church. I want to make it very clear, those are not the offenses that I am talking about. Those offenses prove that we need the message of the cross. We need repentance. In fact, that's why I'm here. I need repentance every day. That's why we as a church come around the cross, because we need repentance. Can everybody live at the Hills Church say amen? amen? That's not the offense that we're talking about. The offense is tied 
to this message of a crucified Savior. The offense is that we were so lost in our sin, we needed God to rescue us, and the way God chose to do it offends us for how gruesome and awful it was. That's the offense that we should have. That's the discomfort that good discipleship should create. And it's so tempting to want to be winsome and then throw out what's offensive or uncomfortable. But if you want a comfortable Christianity, you have to get rid of the cross. And if you get rid of the cross, you've lost the power of God. So because God has chosen to work through the places we would never choose, like the cross, we shouldn't be surprised that he decides to work through people we would not expect. And that's where Paul goes next. Brothers and sisters, in verse 26, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, everybody say, the foolish things. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose, everybody say, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose, one more time, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you are a Christian who claims a crucified Messiah, you are among the foolish things God's using in this world. We should not be surprised that there may be aspects of our faith that make others uncomfortable or that cause for us awkward social tension. And if you believe the foolishness of the cross through a community of the crucified Savior, here's what we have to proclaim. Not only that the cross is God's worst offense, but that the cross is our best and only hope. This is the power of God. To save us. And if you're new, that you may be going, okay, but then why? Like, what was so important about what Jesus did on the cross? I want you to know, next week we're going to talk about that at length. But right now, even in this passage, there's the beginnings of an answer. 1 Corinthians verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, Holiness and redemption. So pause for a second. When Paul talks about what Jesus has become for us, even saying wisdom from God isn't enough. Because when you talk about the cross, there's so many different ways that you can talk about what Jesus did. And as I said, we'll do that next week. But right here, even right here, Paul can't just do it in one word. He needs to give a little list. And so he talks about Jesus as our righteousness. That Jesus was perfectly righteous, that he was aligned rightly with the character of God, showed how humans are intended and made to live at their fullest and best, full of love and mercy and justice and kindness and truth. This is how Jesus lived, and he, through his life, not only gives us an example, but gives us righteousness itself. He is our righteousness. Jesus is our holiness. Holy means set apart pure, unstained, this is how Jesus lived, a sinless, perfect, holy life, reflecting perfectly the character and nature of God as he was God in the flesh. And you and I and every person who's ever lived has no way to be perfectly holy on our own. 
And yet through the cross, through Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out, we are cleansed of our sin and made holy, covered with the righteousness of Christ, the holiness. Jesus has become our holiness that we might draw near to God. And lastly, Jesus is our redemption. He's bought us back. He's set us free from slavery to sin. He has redeemed us. This is part of what Jesus has done on the cross. Therefore, the passage continues, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast in the Lord. If this is all true, that means that we have officially given up the idea that we contributed anything to our salvation other than the sin that required it. It means that we say Jesus is the one who's done all this for me. He's the only one we can boast in. Our place of boasting will be the foot of the cross. And even on that cross, Jesus showed one more time how he's our redemption. Because when you look at the picture of the cross, if you zoom out, there were three crosses that day. Other criminals being crucified. And those criminals, the Gospels write, were mocking Jesus along with everyone else there. Until all of a sudden, one of those criminals turns desperately to Jesus and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus looks at that thief and says, today, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. His redemption. I love what Scottish pastor Alistair Begg says about this. Like, the thief on the cross is this anomaly, this offensive scandal of grace. That Jesus would then look at this person. I mean, this is, the thief on the cross is the kind of person you want to meet in heaven. And just go, okay, uh, how did this all shake out for you? Because one minute you're cussing him with everybody else. And the next minute you are at the entrance of heaven. How did this happen? I mean, because you, you'd never had a Bible study. You, you'd never been baptized. You'd never gone to a single worship service. But you made it. How did you make it? In fact, Beg jokes that that's probably, you know, if, if, if there were some angel posted at the entrance of heaven, that's what that angel would have asked. How are you here? I, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Because I don't know. It's just that, you know, people usually have, let me go get my supervisor. It goes against the angel supervisor. They come back. They're trying to wrestle this out. And they're like, okay, son, we've just got a couple questions to understand on what basis you're here. Uh, do, do you have a, a handle on the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith? The thief on the cross is shaking his head. Okay, let's just skip past that. How about we go straight to the doctrine of Scripture, the reliability of God's Word? No. And eventually, in frustration, the angel would ask, okay, just help me understand, on what basis are you here today? The man on the middle cross said, I can come. That is the only answer we can give. Never to answer in the first person. The cross shames our way of answering because I have faith, because I believe, because I was committed. Forget all of that. It is put to shame by the cross so that we only answer because he died on a Roman tree, paid for my sins, rose from the grave because he was crucified. I can be welcomed in today. And so we can say, for the one who boasts, they can only boast in the Lord. That is the power of God. Let's pray together.
Oh, Jesus, I thank you for your mercy and grace poured out for us through your body broken on the cross, your blood poured out. Lord, in the best way possible, would you offend us again with the message of the cross? Would you humble us again in our pride through the message of the cross? Would you show us your love again through the message of the cross? And for those listening for whom this has been foolishness, would you help them experience it as the power of God to know you, to know your son, Jesus, and declare him as Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.